Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zora. Africa, Amka na Unai. Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa from an African perspective coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa on DSTV's audio bouquet Channel 802 and on www.channelafrica.co.za. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Anne Musa, Tabiso Lohoko and Figile Lingwati. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa, contempt case against South Africa's former president to be heard in court today, and the DRC rights groups demand extradition of General John Numbi. In economics news, South African Reserve Bank expected to keep the repo rate unchanged. And in sports news, Burkina Faso qualify for African Cup of Nations finals. But first up, the news with Anne Musa. SABC News, independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Good morning, I'm Anne Moussa. The Commission of Inquiry into State Capture in South Africa is once again heading to the Constitutional Court this morning to seek an order for former President Jacob Zuma to be arrested. Zuma has steadfastly refused to appear before the Commission, accusing its chairperson, Deputy Chief Justice Raymond Zondo of bias. Earlier, Zuma also ignored a Constitutional Court judgment compelling him to appear before the Commission. The Commission has applied to the Apex Court to have Zuma jailed for two years. And Tebo Mukobo reports. The running battles between former President Zuma and the chair of the Commission, Raymond Zondo, have been raging for some time. And after a number of attempts to have Zuma appear before the Commission failed, and with a constitutional court order not even serving as a deterrent, Justice Zondo is left with no option but to apply to have Zuma held in contempt of court. The Commission will approach the Constitutional Court and ask it to impose a term of imprisonment on Mr. Zuma if it finds that he is guilty of contempt of court. And as in the past where the Commission and the Constitutional Court ruled on Zuma in absentia, it seems likely that even today when his possible arrest is discussed and decided, he will not be present. South Africa's Health Minister Zulim Kize says the global coronavirus vaccine rollout has suffered a major blow due to high demand of vaccines throughout the world. South Africa had to pause AstraZeneca vaccinations last month because of a small trial showing that the shot offers minimal protection against mild to moderate illness caused by the dominant coronavirus variant. At the time, the country had received 1 million AstraZeneca doses from the Serum Institute of India and the delivery of another 500,000 was pending. The health department announced on Sunday that the deal to sell the vaccines to the African Union had been completed and that they were on their way to 14 African countries. Mkize says pausing the rollout of AstraZeneca vaccines has distributed the progress of vaccine rollout in South Africa. That is the changeover that's caused us to be where we are. Of course, if we had already been able to use those vaccines, we would be talking about more than 2 million people that could have been vaccinated. At this point, we have a Johnson & Johnson vaccine. In the next two weeks, we'll have got the full total of the 500,000. At this point, we will have, uh, by weekend, the 300,000 would have been received. 
and then 200,000 will come in another two weeks because of the delays in the authorization of their release. In April, we expect that between April and June, 7 million of the Pfizer vaccines should be with us and 3 million of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine will be with us. Kenya has ordered the closure of two vast camps hosting hundreds of thousands of mainly Somali refugees citing security concerns. Previous attempts of shutting them were blocked by the courts. Kenya has engaged in a maritime dispute with Somalia. The BBC's Mary Harper has the details. Kenya's Interior Ministry has given the United Nations Refugee Agency two weeks to come up with a plan to shut down the Dadaab and Kakuma camps. They're homes to hundreds of thousands of refugees from Somalia and South Sudan. It said it would transport the refugees to the borders of their home countries if the camps were not closed. The UNHCR has urged Kenya to find a suitable solution that would ensure people's rights would be protected. It will be next to impossible for most of the refugees to return. Many of them have lived in the camps for decades. Their home countries are still in conflict and they have no homes to go to. The German Chancellor Angela Merkel has cancelled a strict coronavirus lockdown over Easter only a day after it was announced. In a turnabout move, Merkel has told state premiers in a video call that there would be there would not be a strict lockdown over Easter after all. This follows a day of criticism and confusion in Germany, the BBC's Jenny Hill reports. This was an extraordinary statement. At a hastily convened press conference, Angela Merkel said she alone bore responsibility for a plan to extend what is usually a three-day Easter holiday to a five-day shutdown. The decision, which met resistance from business leaders, was, she said, made with the best of intentions, but acknowledged it was impossible to implement. Mrs Merkel, who apologised for what she described as a mistake, will be conscious that as case numbers soar exponentially, public trust in her government's pandemic response is wavering. The number of people who have died of COVID-19-related complications in Brazil has surpassed 300,000. The country is struggling to contain the rapid spread of the virus. Brazil's daily fatality count has more than tripled since the beginning of the year. Yesterday, President Jair Bolsonaro announced a special committee to deal with the crisis. Congresswoman Tabata Amaral, who represents Sao Paulo, says this is too little too late. We are by far in the worst moment of the pandemic here in Brazil. We have different COVID variants that are spreading really fast. We still don't have a decent vaccination plan. And we are talking about a president who has been speaking for an entire year against vaccines, against the use of masks, against social distancing, and who only yesterday, after an entire year, announced he's going to create a crisis committee. And that's the news. Headlines at 7.30 Central African Time. SABC News. Independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Follow Channel Africa on these social media platforms. On Facebook, Channel Africa One. On Twitter, at Channel Africa One and YouTube on Channel Africa Radio. Our website, www.channelafrica.co.za. Channel Africa, from an African perspective. It's 7.07 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa on DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802. 
and on www.channelafrica.co.za. Amazulu traditional Prime Minister Prince Mangosutu Butelezi has announced that Queen Manvombi Lamini has been appointed by the royal family as regent until a successor for the late King Goodwill Zuelitini is chosen. Butelezi says that that was according to the wishes of King Goodwill Zuelitini. She is King Goodwill Zuelitini's third wife and the sister of Eswatini King Mswati III. Fanele Mklongo reports. The Amazulu nation has been eagerly waiting for an announcement on who will lead the nation after the passing of King Goodwill Zuelitini. The king passed on from COVID-19-related complications earlier this month at the age of 72. He was interred a ceremony called Ugojala in Isizulu in the early hours of last Thursday. The traditional prime minister, Prince Mangosutu Butelezi, spoke to the media that had been waiting outside Gwaketom Tandayo Royal Palace yesterday after a long family meeting by members of the royal family. Today, in the presence of more than 200 members of the royal family, His Majesty King Goodwill Zultinga Pekuzulu's will was read um, by his lawyers. And in line with the wishes of His Majesty the King, the family would like to announce that Her Majesty Queen Mantombi Jamini Zulu will act as regent of the Zulu nation during the interregnum. While Her Majesty is the de facto regent, further decisions on the succession itself of the Zulu monarchy will not be announced until the family's mourning period is over. Meanwhile, Butelezi has conveyed the wish of the regent and the royal family that members of the Zulu nation end their mourning and start working the land on Friday. The regent and the royal family have asked me that I impress upon the nation the late king's wish for his people to take out their hose on Friday. As a champion of food security himself and subsistence farming, his mercy urged that things should not come to a standstill for a long time after, for a long, long, rather long morning period. People are thus free to plough from Friday the 26th of March 2020 in accordance with His Majesty's wish. Reacting to the announcement of Queen Manthombi as regent, Nogoma residents say they will support him and are optimistic that she will follow on the footsteps of the departed Zulu monarch. No I support whoever has been appointed as a regent and will support the person who will permanently insult. I call on the regent to make sure that she fully supports agricultural activities and make sure that she encourages women to promote food security. We support her, but she must put pressure on people to work hard, follow on the footsteps of a previous king. We really like her, but she must not change things that have been done by the late king. I want to see cultural activities such as Mkosomlang, Amarula Ceremony and others, continue. Meanwhile, the departed king's agricultural advisor, Mtsanda Zeleni Lameni, hopes that the next monarch will also make agriculture a priority. Lamini has commended the late king for encouraging women to also start farming projects. 
There is so much work that he has done, especially in the agricultural field, empowering people in agriculture. What excited me and what has never happened, while I was still in the field of agriculture, the king said he wanted us to do a project that has never been done, where women start an association of their own in cattle farming. They started a dairy farm that was owned by women only. It was amazing. They bred cattle, they supplied hospitals and schools with their products. Botelis has added that during their mourning period the next three months, the royal family will not discuss who the successor to King Kudul Zulitini will be. I'm Fanilom Shongo, Kwaketom Tandayo in Nongomam. The Commission on State Capture in South Africa is heading to the Constitutional Court today to seek an order for former President Jacob Zuma to be arrested. Zuma has blatantly refused to appear before the Commission, accusing its presiding officer, Deputy Chief Justice Raymond Zondo, of being biased. Earlier, he ignored the Constitutional Court judgment, compelling him to appear before the Commission. The Commission has applied to the Apex Court to have Zuma jailed for two years, and the application will be heard this morning. Ndebo Mugobo has more. Mr. Zuma has left, I've been told. Mr. Zuma had been issued with a summons to be here from Monday to tomorrow, unless he was excused by me. He has left today without asking me to be excused. Deputy Chief Justice and Chairperson of the State Capture Commission Raymond Zondo was visibly act and disappointed at former President Jacob Zuma's decision to walk out of the commission without permission. The running battles between the two have been raging for some time. And after a number of attempts to have Zuma appear before the commission failed and with the constitutional court order not even serving as a deterrent, Justice Zondo was left with no option but to apply to have Zuma held in contempt of court. And Zondo seems unrelenting in his action against Zuma for not respecting the commission and the highest court in the land. The commission will make an application to the constitutional court, which is the court that made the order that Mr. Zuma has defied, and seek an order that Mr. Zuma is guilty of contempt of court. And if the constitutional court reaches that conclusion, then it is in its discretion what to do. One of the things it can do is to impose a term of imprisonment on Mr. Zuma. Another would be for it to impose a fine. The Commission will approach the Constitutional Court and ask it to impose a term of imprisonment on Mr. Zuma if it finds that he is guilty of contempt of court. But Zuma is unfazed. In his response, he wrote a letter to the Constitutional Court saying he will not participate in any legal proceedings instituted against him by the Commission. He has also ignored the deadline to file responding affidavits on the application for his imminent arrest. His only reason for not cooperating with the Commission is that its presiding officer, Deputy Chief Justice Raymond Zondo, is biased. I don't want you to leave without you getting an explanation. I feel like my rights were disregarded, the rights I fought for and sacrificed for. I won't respect a judge when he does that. He must respect my rights so that the Constitution can work in the right way. Constitution 
As in the past, where the Commission and the Constitutional Court ruled on Zuma in absentia, it seems likely that even on Thursday, when his possible arrest is discussed and decided, he will not be present. I am Debumokobo in Johannesburg. The soon-to-be-implemented Political Party Funding Act in South Africa has come under scrutiny during a webinar hosted by a civil society organization, My Vote Counts. There's great anticipation to see how political parties will make financial disclosures public. The new legislation has been hailed as an historic development for transparency and accountability in South Africa. Busi Chimombe reports. With just over a week before the Political Parties Funding Act comes into force, political analyst Rolf Matecha says that the legislation will be beneficial to the internal governance systems of the individual parties. Matecha says that despite political parties' reluctance to champion and support the legislation since it was first mooted in the 2000s, it will contribute positively to the manner in which they run themselves and to the country's democracy. The level of governance that it requires when it comes to reporting, it actually that level of governance actually for the first time opens the books of political parties or the practices of political parties to external scrutiny in a way that we have not seen before. And I believe that South Africa's political parties suffering from the crisis of internal democracy, as we are seeing with cases where members sometimes take each other to court, South Africa's political parties will gain by this external scrutiny that is coming through external institutions such as this act when it comes to how it can impact upon the internal functioning of political parties. The Electoral Commission will be responsible for administering the funding as well as monitoring and inspecting the activities of political parties in this regard. The act puts in place stringent measures with regards to direct private donations to political parties while the legislation allows donors to request anonymity in terms of their identity and amount donated. It requires disclosure from the party and donor for a minimum payment of 100,000 rands per annum and allows a maximum donation of 15 million rands a year. Parties must report donations on the IEC's online portal. IEC head of the political funding unit, George Mahlangu. So political parties must keep this information. It must disclose this information on quarterly basis. Uh, the record-keeping period, uh, the maximum, or is limited to five years. So uh, any time between now and five years, uh, these, in, these records can be requested and the political parties must provide that information. Matlango says small parties represented in the national and provincial legislatures will be the beneficiaries of greater funding when the Act is implemented. As we speak, the, the allocation ratio is 90 proportional and 10 equitable. However, political party funding has revised uh, this allocation to two-thirds and one-third, otherwise it's 33% and 67%, meaning that smaller parties are gaining from the new political party funding in terms of uh, uh, sharing. As the 1st of April looms, the onus will lie on political parties to demonstrate the political will to implement the legislation vigilantly and on citizens to hold them accountable. That report by Busi Chimombe.
when I think back to my childhood, geographically, it reminds me of a time where I was black and only black and only struggling, but at the same time, always reaching for something more, something bigger in a South Africa that was hostile. Hello, Africa. This is 1000 African Voices, and I'm your host, Avurengui. Join me on Channel Africa every Thursday morning between 8 and 9 and on Saturday and Sunday morning between 9 and 10. Rise, Africa, rise. Channel Africa, from an African perspective. It's 7.20 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. The National Institute of Communicable Diseases in South Africa has warned that mass gatherings and social events over the Easter holidays are likely to cause a surge in COVID-19 cases which may trigger a third wave. Many South Africans have abandoned non-pharmaceutical interventions to prevent contracting COVID-19. Some have chosen to stop wearing masks at large family gatherings. This comes as South Africa is falling behind on its vaccination targets. Prabhashni Mudli reports. Lockdown level one has left many South Africans with a sense of freedom from COVID-19 restrictions. A look through social media and in the public spaces, one would assume that lockdown restrictions have been lifted. A number of organizations across the country have labeled lockdown restrictions unjust. One of these is the Liberty Fighters Network. They've approached the Gauteng High Court to oppose all the regulations and the wearing of masks in particular. The network's president, Reno de Beer, is adamant that the country is not in a state of disaster and that there is no evidence to prove that masks prevent infection from COVID-19. We are challenging all lockdown regulations. We believe that there was never a disaster in the first place. What is so totally ridiculous about the whole forceful wearing of masks, there are so many people who cannot wear masks. There's not sufficient information out there to to actually tell people that you must wash your mask regularly. What they are trying to do is is not helping at all. I, I don't wear masks. Wherever I can skip wearing a mask, I I take the opportunity. I don't need it, and it makes me feel claustrophobic. Under lockdown level one, many families have chosen to host weddings, birthday parties and large-scale gatherings with no observance of social distancing. With the Easter weekend approaching, celebrations and travel are likely to continue. Head of the Centre for HIV and STIs at the National Institute for Communicable Diseases, or NICD, Professor Adrian Purin, says irresponsible behaviour will be detrimental to the country's efforts to avert a third wave of infections. If we have the people coming or congregating together under those types of circumstances with poor implementation of the so-called pharmaceutical interventions, that means close contact, not wearing of masks, poor ventilation, all this, that, that combination of, of effects, I think, will certainly lead to an uptick and increase in cases. Do you really need to travel? Do you really need to have these types of cases? Do you really need to have these numbers of people in close contact? 
While South Africa's vaccination program is well underway, Deputy Health Minister Joe Patla says government will not achieve its target of vaccinating 1.5 million healthcare workers by April. This is due to the lack of available vaccines. The country also plans to vaccinate 14 million citizens by the end of the year. Professor Pudin says if the third wave hits in June, as currently predicted, the country would have not vaccinated enough people to prevent the virus from spreading rapidly. We won't reach herd immunity. As you know, magical number is about 67%. We're nowhere close to that. And again, I think it was predicted that we would have a million a million and a half in the first phase. So really, we're really going to have to scale up quite dramatically to really protect the, the healthcare workers. Meanwhile, Archbishop Daniel Marte of the St. John's Apostolic Faith Mission Church of South Africa says with the imminent threat of the third wave after Easter, the church has decided to cancel their Good Friday service in an effort to prevent the spread of the virus. What we are seeing it is we cannot own the Easter because of this disease. It kills. It is very dangerous. So that is why we have cancelled the Good Friday for this year. And then we are having only Sunday prayer. South Africa has recorded more than 1.5 million cases of the coronavirus and more than 52,000 deaths, a number experts expect to increase if social behaviour is not altered, especially heading into the Easter weekend. Prabhashni Mudli, SABC News, Johannesburg. Black South Africans were more willing to sacrifice their rights to stop the spread of the coronavirus than white counterparts. This is according to the Human Sciences and Research Council in a study conducted during the lockdown last year. The HSRC released the findings of its research titled Who is Willing to Sacrifice Human Rights in the Context of COVID in a Webinar in Pretoria? The findings come as the country is about to mark one year since the lockdown was instituted to curb the spread of the coronavirus. Maluti Obusing reports. The study was conducted in three phases in April to May, August to October and December last year to January this year. The HSRC's Divisional Research Executive Professor Nania Bola Miller explains the research outcomes. 78% of South Africans were willing to sacrifice their human rights to stop the spread of the cup to 78 in the third round. So there wasn't much difference across the rounds as to this general question that was, are you willing to sacrifice your rights? But when we broke it down to which rights you're willing to sacrifice, then the outcome was slightly different. Meanwhile, Professor Bola Muller says, according to demographics, it has been found that black South Africans were more willing to sacrifice their rights to stop the spread of the virus compared to their white counterparts. The most the demographic group most willing to sacrifice their rights were black South Africans at 81%. The demographic in South Africa that were least willing to sacrifice their rights were white South Africans at 58%. Chief Executive Officer of the South African Human Rights Commission advocate Tsiriso Tipanyani says the commission has seen an increase in the number of complaints of human rights violations during the lockdown. So yes, the number of complaints did increase because of the peculiar nature of of COVID-19 that we are now limiting the rights. The other thing which concerns us, which we're also looking at, is under moral offences. What will happen to people who, who 
who got a criminal record for not wearing a mask. Because then, you know, uh, I'm going to have a, a policy where after a certain period of time, those uh, records will be expunged. Human rights and social justice activist Mark Haywood says respect for and promotion of human rights will improve the country's COVID-19 response. So there's a positive side that has to be much better understood. There are positive state obligations when it comes to socioeconomic rights whose regression makes people more vulnerable to COVID-19, to spreading COVID-19 and to dying of COVID-19. The HSRC and the Human Rights Commission say, despite they are being an important players in research and protection of human rights, the National Corona Command Council, chaired by President Cyril Ramaphosa, has never invited them to give input on how to deal with the coronavirus. I am Maluti Ubusing in Pretoria. It's exactly one year to the day since uh, India announced its first COVID-19 lockdown and the country has now confirmed the presence of a new coronavirus variant. This is the first India variant of the virus identified so far and government says it's unclear if this strain is behind a sudden surge in cases. Nihapunya has more. On a day, India recorded more COVID-19 cases and deaths than it has in the last five months. The health ministry confirming there's now a new double mutant strain of the coronavirus here in India. A genome sequencing study of about 10,000 samples found this strain in 18 states, along with variants of strains first detected in the UK, Brazil and South Africa. The government says this mutation in the virus does not match previously catalogued variants. Specifically in the state of Maharashtra, which is the country's worst hit region, the mutations were found in 15 to 20 percent of all the samples. The government has said that such strains usually signify that the virus has become more infectious, but it claims it isn't alarmed just yet. Authorities claim they have not detected numbers large enough that they can attribute the sudden surge in cases to the India variant of the virus. The government says states must continue to rigorously test, treat and track cases. Restrictions have already been placed in many regions ahead of holy celebrations over this weekend. Prime Minister Modi's government has also ruled out the imposition of another lockdown. Last year, on this very day, India was placed under what was possibly the strictest and largest lockdown anywhere in the world. The biggest and most immediate impact was felt by the country's informal workforce, men and women who make up 80% of India's employees. 2.6 million migrant workers were left stranded overnight. One million made it back home, many of them making that long journey on foot. More than 120 million people lost their jobs in the months following the lockdown. Despite this, the government has repeatedly defended its decision to shut the country down back when India only had 500 cases, saying that without a lockdown, India would have had 14 million cases by June 2020 and 2.6 million deaths. But a year on, India is now the world's third worst hit country after the United States and Brazil in terms of overall cases. Experts say a complete opening up of the economy, a lax implementation of COVID-19 guidelines and coronavirus fatigue are to blame. The government has been urging everyone who is eligible to get vaccinated, but the country has been struggling with vaccine hesitancy. While numbers have picked up since the immunization drivers first launched back in January, the country has only reached 50 million of the targeted 300 million citizens so far. Neha Punia, New Delhi.
It's 7.31 Central African time and our headlines up next with Anne Musa. SABC News. Independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Aman Musa, good morning. In the headlines, the Commission of Inquiry into State Capture in South Africa is once again heading to the Constitutional Court this morning to seek an order for former President Jacob Zuma to be arrested. South Africa's Health Minister Zulim Kizeh says the global coronavirus vaccine rollout has suffered a major blow due to high demand of vaccines throughout the world. And Kenya has ordered the closure of two vast camps hosting hundreds of thousands of mainly Somali refugees, citing security concerns. Those are the stories making headlines. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Thank you, Anne. In the Democratic Republic of Congo, the Voice of Voiceless, a human rights organization well known as VSV, has demanded the extradition of General John Numbi, the man referred to as a suspect number one in the assassination of Floribet Chebea, a human rights activist, and his driver, Fidel Bazana, is said to have fled the DRC and suspected to be in Zimbabwe. The Congolese government hasn't confirmed this, but the VSV has called on the DRC authorities to get strongly involved. Januel Bamweze reports from Kinshasa. This former head of the Congolese National Police PNC was to appear last Thursday before the military court to provide explanations on his alleged involvement in this double assassination committed in 2010. But General John Numbi, who had already taken refuge in his Beijing farm in Lubumbashi in the Hokatanga province, didn't respond to the invitation. The man is said to have taken the road abroad and is already in Zimbabwe. La Voix de Savoie, the VSV that was led by late Floribert Chebea, has then called on a strong involvement of the Congolese government to obtain the extradition of this fugitive general to Kinshasa. Rosten Manketa is the VSV Executive Secretary. John Numbi was supposed to be the most watched person. You know, more than a hundred NGOs had asked for his immediate arrest. But since we are in a country which is not yet a rule of law, no one listened to us. But I believe it's a must for authorities to demand the extradition of John Numbi. The military justice has already issued a warrant of arrest against John Numbi, but since last week, the former boss of the Congolese police is nowhere to be found. Congolese authorities have said they have not been officially informed about the man's presence in Zimbabwe, but investigations are underway, according to Bernard Takaishe, the acting minister of justice. We are working on this. 
if it's proven that there are facts and that this man should be extradited, he will. We are not officially informed, but we have triggered the verification mechanism. The verification? John Nompi was recently named as the sponsor of the assassination of Chebea and Bazana by two police officers who claimed to have participated in this crime. Jean Noel Bamoise for Channel Africa in Kinshasa. The gunman in the deadly mass shooting in Boulder, Colorado in the United States has been charged with 10 counts of first-degree murder and one count of attempted murder. As investigators search for a motive for the attacks, the 21-year-old suspect was moved from hospital where he was treated for a leg injury to the Boulder County Jail. This as pressure builds on the U.S. Senate to take up at least two bills that passed the House of Representatives earlier this month, expanding background checks while closing federal loopholes on gun purchases, show in Bryce Peace reports. A makeshift memorial at the King Super's grocery store where the 10 victims met an untimely death. Growing into a late-night vigil as yet another community in the United States grapples with a tragedy linked to gun violence. Shannon Watts is a gun control advocate. It has been a horrific 24 hours of hearing from family and friends who are devastated by what happened and also terrified that this is the new reality. Gun violence is a pandemic within a pandemic. We know about 50 million guns were sold in the last year, many of them to people who live in states that don't require a background check or training or permitting. And so I'm truly afraid that the gun violence we're seeing, not just mass shootings, but the daily gun violence we see in our communities is going to increase in the coming weeks and months. While investigators search for clues as to a motive, the suspect's family described him to local media as paranoid and antisocial. A naturalized U.S. citizen born in Syria who moved to the country with his family at the age of three, using an AR-15-styled rifle to mow down his victims. Listen to Michael Doherty, the Boulder District Attorney. As I mentioned, the shooter is currently in custody. He was injured. With an eye towards the prosecution of that case, we're going to be very careful about the crime scene and how we go about this investigation. We owe it to the families of all the victims, each and every one of them, to ensure that justice is done. And I promise you that is our commitment, and we will work tirelessly to get there. Flags were lowered to half-staff at the White House in honor of the victims as the focus turns to Congress and the passage of legislation that would expand background checks on all gun purchases and an assault weapons ban, as President Joe Biden explained. The United States Senate, I hope some are listening, should immediately pass the two House pass bills that close loopholes in the background check system. These are bills that receive votes of both Republicans and Democrats in the House. This is not, it should not be a partisan issue. This is an American issue. It will save lives, American lives. And we have to act. We should also ban assault weapons in the process. I'll have much more to say as we learn more. But I wanted to be clear. Those poor folks who died left behind families that leaves a big hole in their hearts. And we can save lives. But finding compromise in a Senate split equally between Democrats and Republicans could prove a hurdle too steep yet again. 
Richard Blumenthal is a Democratic senator from Connecticut. Unsurprising, inaction has made this horror completely predictable. Inaction by this Congress makes us complicit. Now is the time for action to honor these victims with action, real action, not the fig leaves or the shadows that have been offered on the other side, along with hopes and thoughts and prayers. Thoughts and prayers cannot save the eight victims in Atlanta or the ten last night. Senator Ted Cruz is his Republican colleague from Texas. I agree. It is time for us to do something. And every time there's a shooting, we play this ridiculous theater where this committee gets together and proposes a bunch of laws that would do nothing to stop these murders. What happens in this committee after every mass shooting is Democrats propose taking away guns from law-abiding citizens because that's their political objective. The victims in Colorado spanning 20 years of age to 65. In a country all too familiar with loss during pandemics, one a virus, the other the barrel of a gun. I'm Sherman Bryce-Pease in New York. The South African Students' Congress, SASCO, says it's engaged in talks with the country's ruling ANC's national executive in an attempt to secure funding for students at institutions of higher learning. Students at various tertiary institutions embarked on protests calling for free education and for the scrapping of historical student debt, which they say has made it impossible for them to register for the 2021 academic year. Yesterday, which was on Wednesday, Higher Education Minister Dr. Bladen Zimande called on students to call off their protests during a parliamentary meeting. Sasha Naidu reports. Students are adamant that those with outstanding debt be allowed to register and continue with their studies. ANC Secretary-General Ace Makashule also indicated during a student march to party headquarters in Johannesburg a couple of weeks ago that he had instructed government to find resources to assist struggling students. SASCO President Bamayane Matiwane says their meeting with the ANC leadership is one of several such meetings aimed at finding a solution to the student funding crisis. We are, as the top six of SASCO, engaging the top six of the of the ANC and trying to find a better solution. Uh, there are people who have been tasked by the president of the country uh, to do fi- fact-finding. Uh, then there is one outstanding meeting which will uh, resolve on the way forward. Uh, uh, indeed, the Secretary General was correct. Uh, the officials did meet. Uh, they met all the alliances. They met uh, the South African Congress as well and trying to get a way forward. Wits University's Student Representative Council has taken it upon themselves to raise funds to assist students with historical debt and who cannot register. The fundraising campaign, dubbed 21 million rand in 2021, is aimed at ensuring that students with outstanding debt are not excluded from receiving an education. Wits SRC President Mpendulo Mfeka. A number of our students are unable to register due to historical debt and debt that relates in particular to the 2020 academic year. So we then decided to uh, go on a campaign to try and raise 21 million in 2021. It's a campaign that has been ongoing now for two months. Uh, We have NGOs that have donated, we have churches, we have religious organizations, so to say, 
We have uh, corporates, civil society, students who've donated to the campaign. And up to that far, we've raised about 4 million rands. The University of Johannesburg's SRC, on the other hand, says they are currently engaged in consultations with students to decide on whether they will embark on a fundraising campaign. UJ student leader Diego Koza. As students in the student fraternity, there has been some discussion that look, if there is still agency of students who are part of the missing middle or who are not necessarily going to be covered by the funds that the university is trying to create, we should come up try to uh, do some fundraising, try to raise funds for them. But that is still in, in its rhetoric phases to see if there is really agency on such a matter. The EFF Student Command says they are currently talking to their branches across the country with the aim of intensifying their protest action to force government into acceding to their demands. Secretary General of the EFF Student Command, Muzi Koza, says government must intervene and find a fund to accommodate students. As the student commanders speak now, we have convened all our branches to, to, to try and uh, revive their spirit. We are continuing indeed. We'll be going to the street to shut down. And worse, this time around, we'll intensify so that this government can respond because we try to at least right to them we try to at least shut down gates but they are not willing to budge so what will happen now that will intensify will do more than we did earlier this year higher education minister bladen zimande has appealed to students to end their national shutdown that report by session naidu across the globe every second there's always a breaking story what we want to achieve is a healthy and vibrant economy which can ensure full employment to our people. The government concurs with the views of the Black Economic Empowerment Council report that it is now necessary to make our policies on Black Economic Empowerment more explicit. Last May, I asked constituencies at NetLab to discuss youth employment incentives. I'm pleased that discussion have been concluded and that agreement has been reached on key principles. We are on an ambitious drive to industrialize, to attract investment and to create more jobs for the youth of our country. They don't have jobs. I tried looking for a job for a year and a half now. The challenges were experience and the, the level of education which I have. Channel Africa. It's 7.45 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. Coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Our economics update up next with Chabi Solohoku. Good morning. The South African Reserve Bank's Monetary Policy Committee is expected to keep the repo rate unchanged at 3.5% when it announces its rate decision this afternoon. The move will leave the prime lending rate at 7%. The five-member MPC has been deliberating on the weak economic growth and subdued inflation for the past two days. 
Stats SA announced on Wednesday that consumer price inflation urged lower to 2.9% in February. The bank expects inflation to average 4% and growth at 3% this year. The current low interest rate environment will continue to support struggling households and businesses. Nedbank's economist Isaac Mashiho. Core underlying price pressures are subdued and of course it's in line with our view that the Reserve Bank will have to keep interest rates flat throughout 2021 due to subdued inflation and a fragile economic recovery. The Southern African Alcohol Policy Alliance has called for daily liquor sales to be restricted to 6 p.m. over the Easter holidays to slow the spread of the coronavirus. The call comes amid warnings by health experts that the country is likely to face a third wave in the aftermath of Easter celebrations and relaxed lockdown regulations. SAPA Director Morris Smithers has stressed that the Easter break is a potential catalyst for a third wave of coronavirus infections. We would really like us to look ahead and say, how can we prevent, how can we slow down the potential problems and avoid having to implement bans? Because we don't think that bans are necessarily the best solution. What we really want is a situation where you manage the way in which people drink rather than stop people from drinking. People keep talking about the third wave and about winter, and now we know we're heading into Easter, long weekend. And so all yeah. we're saying is try and get some kind of control how alcohol will get consumed to avoid alcohol becoming a super spreader and seeing the numbers going up. South Africa's National Liquor Traders Council National Convener, Lucky Ndimani, says businesses, especially restaurants, will not survive if alcohol sales are restricted again. The initial concern is that we've got restaurants that are struggling to survive as it were. If you're going to tell them at 6 o'clock, you've now given them 10 steps backwards ahead of the two steps forward that they've been taking. So I think it's a shotgun approach at this stage. We need to come with ways in which the industry can be safeguarded. You cannot survive as a restaurant owner if you have to close at 6 p.m., for example. Mm-hmm. As it were, it, it really cannot be that you know we close at 6 o'clock. It's not going to be sustainable in the long run. Advisory firm IH Securities has projected a 395% rise in revenue at the Zimbabwe Stock Exchange-listed conglomerate Inscore Africa Limited during the year to 30th June, underpinned by high consumer spending as lockdown restrictions have eased. IH projected that the economy will revert to normal in the coming months as governments reopen economies and vaccines flow into most African markets to prevent the spread of COVID-19, which affected consumer-facing businesses in 2020. In an analysis of Inscore's financial results for the half-year ended 31st December, IH said revenue would rise to $55.19 billion during the full year to 30th June from $11.16 billion during the same period last year. Zambia says incorporating financial education in the curriculum of primary, secondary and tertiary education will empower citizens with necessary skills to manage risks and contribute to the attainment of the Vision 2030. In 2006, the government launched the Vision 2030 for Zambia to become a prosperous middle-income nation and is founded on a 
basic principles such as sustainable development, upholding democratic principles, respect for human rights, fostering family values and a positive attitude to work. Currently, formal and informal sectors account for about 60% of Zambians that are financially included and the Bank of Zambia targets increasing the number to 80% by 2022 through the National Financial Inclusion Strategy. The US dollar is a trading at 390.7945 Nigerian Naira. It's a 1089 Botswana Pula, 108.98 Kenyan shilling and a 22.55 Zambian kwacha. In BRICS currencies, should you wish to travel with me, Balungile will start in Brazil. One US dollar there trades at 5 rule 54. Russia, 75 rubles 33. India, 72 rupees 78. China, 6 yuan 52. And in South Africa, a dollar is a trading at 14 rand 87. The US dollar is also trading at 72 pence to the British pound and 84 cents to the euro. Looking at commodities, gold is trading at 1,000. Seven thirty-seven dollars and platinum one thousand one seventy dollars per ounce. Brand crude sixty-three dollars thirty-seven cents a barrel. From an African perspective, Today is the day Bafana Bafana playing, you mentioned yeah. earlier. Uh, the, yes, uh, it's, you know, we've been waiting for these games so that we should know what's going to happen now. We've been waiting for these Afghan qualifiers for quite a while, mm. but South Africa has a good chance of winning. They, 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 they haven't been very bad, but due to the COVID-19 of the restriction mm. of all the players, mm. you know, that's a problem. Yeah, yeah, unfortunate, very unfortunate, but uh, let's hope for the best and let's hope that uh, they, they put their hearts out there and, yeah. and, and we, work hard. Yes. Give us an update. Let's start off now with the Olympic news. Team South Africa's Olympic and Paralympic athletes, along with some of the sports fat kids, are set to benefit from a four-year, 15 million South African rent sponsorship with Platinum Planet Fitness. The South African Sports Confederation and Olympic Committee Saskok announced a deal which also involves Fit SA to cater for athletes not living in main centers in Johannesburg. Saskok President Barry Hendricks says they had yet to find out which athletes would take up the offer. Athlete preparation uh, despite COVID has been going forward. The federations have been great in managing their athletes. We have a renewed spirit in terms of our team delivery. Uh, the sponsorships have given us greater confidence that we are going to deliver a successful team to Tokyo and we're going to bring back some medals. The Tokyo 2020 Olympic torch relay will start in Fukushima, Japan today. It will then travel through all of the country's 47 prefectures over the next 121 days before arriving in Tokyo for the Olympic Games opening ceremony on the 23rd of July. 
In football news, the Tokyo 2020 uh, the Nigeria senior men's team camp has seen a number of players arrive as the countdown begins for the final round of the qualification matches for the 2021 Africa Cup of Nations against Benin Republic and Lesotho respectively. Tony Ubani reports. Nigeria topped their group with eight points, one better than the squirrels of Benin Republic against whom they trade tackles at the state charge the goal in Port Novo on Saturday in the penultimate round of the qualifying campaign. Three days later, the Eagles confront the Crocodiles of Lesotho at the Teslim Balogu Stadium, Lagos, in what will be their first encounter in Nigeria's commercial and economic capital in 10 years. Fandoner eagled each of the three par fives at the current country club to move into a lead at halfway point of the Kenya Savannah Classic. Another South African uh, overnight leader, Justin Harding, says he's happy. Golf course just suits me well. I enjoy it out there. Um, I drove it really good today. I put it in play, and to be perfectly fair, didn't probably hit it close enough to the hole. Um, made a couple good long putts and then missed a couple short ones, which were which were annoying. But ultimately, it's uh, two good days' work done. And finally, the South African Hockey Association has announced the team that will represent the country at the African Indoor Cup, African Hockey's Indoor World Cup qualifier in Devon in April. The team features three unkept players in the 12, along with the two most kept indoor hockey players in Africa. The tournament will see South Africa, Namibia and Botswana compete to earn the right to represent Africa at the 2021 Indoor Hockey World Cup in Belgium. That's your Sport News this hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Well, that wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producer Pumuzora Magaza, technical producer Swiso Mashiko, and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at infochannelafrica.co.za or tweet us at Rise Shine Africa. Our taking us to the top of the hour for the news is Tiwa Savage with a song titled If I Start to Talk. Goodbye and keep safe.